Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt. I identify as a cis white gay man, and I'm also a Chicago resident. I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise and provide their stories and voices and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Dr. Anu Hazra. Uh, do you prefer Dr. Hazra or Anu or... Anu is fine. Anu, okay. Anu is fine. I love that because I've interviewed a few <laughs> different doctors on staff here and uh, sometimes we like the title, sometimes it's just Anu. So, uh, Anu, thank you for joining us. Would you yeah. mind uh, introducing yourself, your role here at Howard Brown and yeah, pronouns? Yeah, of course. Uh, my name is Anu Hazra, he, him, pronouns. I'm a medical provider and a co-medical director of the Howard Brown Health 55th Street Clinic and medical director of mobile health services here at Howard Brown Health. Okay, so there's quite a few titles wrapped up in that. Uh, <laughs> the last portion was mobile health services? What does uh, that look yeah, like? Yeah, so mobile health services. So um, helping uh, our mobile health team um, doing a few things. Really, the past, obviously, two years have been um, uh, pretty much entangled with COVID testing, COVID vaccinations. Mm-hmm. But ideally, being able to do mobile health services for a lot of our patients who have difficulties getting to clinics or difficulties just interfacing with healthcare. Gotcha. Okay. That's that concept of, we've talked about it a lot in various episodes of kind of meeting a community's needs where they are, not exactly. necessarily expecting them to be able to have the resources to come in and, and uh, get the care they need. So we'll bring it to them. I love that. Um, invited you on today, and we talked a little bit about uh, this before we started recording, but um, it's uh, a PETA month, which for um, people that aren't well-versed in acronyms and things, that's Asian Pacific Islander Desi American Heritage Month. I think I got all those identities. I think that's correct, correct. yeah. And this this podcast presents a, a fun opportunity because uh, from that acronym, there's so many identities and experiences rolled into a PETA month, and we can't hope we can't hope to to um, give all of them their due, but hopefully this will kind of raise the conversation a little bit. And we invited you here to kind of talk about your experience um, and then also how it applies to healthcare uh, and the work that Howard Brown is doing. So um, just to kind of start off, uh, how would you classify Asian American and how would you identify yourself? Yeah, um, I, th- I think you uh, already touched upon this. I think um, Asian Americans is really broad umbrella term that um, that unifies a lot of different identities and even a lot of different intersectional identities in there. Um, uh, I can tell you a little bit about myself and sort of where I think I fall in sort of that Asian umbrella, uh, Asian American umbrella. So uh, I am a second generation immigrant. My parents came here in this country from India uh, in the 1970s. And my sister and I were both born here actually just outside Chicago. Um, and uh, so I identify myself really as an, an Indian American or sort of almost more like an immigrant American, uh, given that sort of experience I had growing up. Um, I have a lot of family that still lives in India, so I find myself going back there quite often. Um, And when you speak to a lot of sort of um, uh, children of immigrants or people who came from families of immigrants, a lot of that sort of melding of these different identities and different cultures uh, was oftentimes, you know, what made (laughs) our uh, growing up experience uh, either challenging or also enriching at the same time. Yeah, I'm I'm so intrigued by this concept of like because it's not something that i can identify with the the concept of like that dichotomy of you know feeling uh being a a second generation immigrant and uh, like there's just so many ways that people can label themselves and i'm always cautious and i'm never sure how to 
what 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 phrase to, yeah, to use yeah, if yeah. that makes sense and because... to be honest like i don't even know like i always like there's <laughs> like they call it, uh, i always get confused but like first generation immigrant are the folks that come from um their country of origin and immigrate to right. a different country they fr- and then second generation i believe is that their children and then there's like this 1.5 generation when you immigrate where you were born in this country of origin but you really grew up right. in right. the country that you um uh that that you immigrated to um so i get tripped up as well so i and there might be fat checkers and maybe i'm completely wrong but that's how i always thought about things yeah i was gonna uh, say i would have to throw like a big disclaimer over like this whole episode <laughs> because i will probably use the wrong terms or i'm really good at putting my foot in my mouth uh, no not at all but that's kind of the joy of this podcast is yeah. that like i'm here to serve as like a, a learning um uh intermediary i guess yeah. perhaps because i am really open about the fact that I don't know anything. And so yeah. that's what this podcast is for, um, for other people that might <laughs> want, want to learn things. Um, so, so what made you want to pursue medicine as a career? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't the type that like grew up knowing that I wanted to do medicine. I didn't really have any physicians in my direct family. So mostly more like a first generation sort of physician. Uh, my grandfather physician in, in, in India way back in the day, but never really uh, influenced sort of what I wanted to do. I knew I liked science a lot, but I also liked humanities a lot. So when I came to college, I had a sort of a basic science major. Um, and as I sort of went through sort of college, I realized like I like more and more of the balance of the science of the humanities. And it felt like medicine was like that right fit. I knew like whatever I wanted to do and no matter what part of, you know, the world I was planning on working or where my niche was. Like I wanted to do something that was queer focused or LGBTQ focused. Um, and so I think once I got to medicine, it was a clear sort of line of sight to thinking about, well, how can I um, think of medicine in a queer way and and contribute to that in, in that way as well. Right. And so that leads perfectly into Howard Brown, which is queer yeah. medicine. So there's this stereotype that children of immigrants kind of regard, uh, ir- not irregardless because irregardless isn't a word, but regardless of country of origin, that uh, children of immigrants feel a lot of pressure to uh, attain a certain uh, career or status or um, life that, you know, their parents might have imagined for them. Did you feel that at all? Or is that a misplaced stereotype? Yeah. Am, am I no, wrong for I, saying that? No, I think I think with all stereotypes that are based in some, in some truth, I think, you know, I as children of immigrants, we recognize, and maybe not as children, but definitely I recognize as an adult, uh, the sacrifices my family and my parents made uh, to come to this country with, you know, essentially nothing. Um, and that really, you know, the, the reason they did that was to provide their children or their next generation with the opportunities that they need. And so there's definitely, I feel like for some people maybe feel that pressure um, that they they need to succeed or they need to be able to prove themselves, which I, I agree is not healthy and definitely problematic in its own ways. Um, but but yeah, I, I think that kind of um, that kind of culture definitely exists, and it's not every immigrant. So not painting everyone with a broad brush, but definitely part of that is is based on the sacrifices you see your parents or your family making uh, makes you want to do better or be able to provide even more for not only for them but then for your next generation and onwards. Yeah, that kind of gets on my next question of like how has how has uh, your heritage or the legacy that your parents have provided for you, how has that influenced 
I mean, you talked a little bit about your decision to go into medicine, but how has that, yeah. has that influenced the way that you go about your career? Yeah. I mean, there's like the running joke that like children of Indians either become like doctors, lawyers, or engineers. And it's like funny. And I remember like, as like in high school, I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's so, that's so stupid. That's so basic. Like not at all. And then like, fine. Like I like went into med school. <laughs> um, uh, but, but no, I mean, I, I think, um, I, I honestly think, Again, like my decision to like be, go into medicine, the physician was really that like that love of both like the humanities and the sciences altogether, and feeling like medicine was a nice way of sort of melding the two of them. You know, I think what my parents instilled with me was like this work ethic um, that you know that that you really need to put a lot of work in in order to reap the rewards later, and that you may not see that right away, and and it's okay, but you really need to. Um, uh, really think hard about like what is your vision or what's your goals and, and how are you going to get there um, and I think that's what my parents at least instilled in, in me or I felt they instilled in myself and my sister um, in, 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 in how to succeed or how they thought to succeed in, in America. Yeah that's inspiring. It's, I've, I've talked with um, Caitlin Todd at BYC about uh, during um, Black History Month and I'm intrigued always by these sort of like heritage or representation months uh, because sometimes it's kind of hard to know what to do with them, right. if that makes sense. Heritage and visibility are important. And I guess having this podcast and raising these conversations is one way to do it. But it it is always hard. I, I'm a part of neither of those uh, <laughs> heritage months, but it's it's hard to, to like I said to kind of know how to participate right. uh, especially from you know out, somebody that doesn't have that heritage or maybe even somebody that does what, what comes to mind when you think of um, a PETA month like, yeah does yeah. it matter to you at all Is no. it, I, I don't know like I'm intrigued to see how how you feel about it yeah no I mean I think increased visibility matters right representation mm -hmm. matters I think we we see that across the board among a lot of minoritized and marginalized populations um a PETA month's not something like we celebrated growing up and not something like I celebrate with my right. friends but it's always nice to see and it's nice to like see like showcasing sort of other individuals and other sort of sort of different types of heritage months itself I, th I think again going back to like uh, coming from immigrants, I think you're always like having that culture of duality also was like a double-edged sword because you always was, you were always othered. Like you were othered in the United States and then you were othered in, in for my, my case in India, that mm -hmm. you weren't sort of Indian enough to be Indian, not American enough to be American. And so you're stuck in this like weird gray area. I think a lot of that has changed and that is really through representation in media and elsewhere that people are able to realize that like an Indian American or South Asian American, that's a, that's a true thing, uh, uh an identity on its own. Uh, but I think when that wasn't the case, I think it was really difficult to be able to find that type of identity or, 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 or your place of where you are in, um, uh, sort of in your community. Um, but I, 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 that's, I mean, I, I think, um, heritage months like this that can showcase different sort of aspects of these sort of broader cultures is hugely important. Um, going to different events that happen during these months are a lot of fun too. Um, and then we have even touched upon the intersection of like Asian American identities and queer identities. That's a whole other sort of chapter. Of, oh, we'll dive into that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Of how that all happens. But yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, um, I appreciate, uh, this type of month itself. And I, I think some people will balk and say it's like performative, but then I think it's like, well, then you can be cynical and think everything is performative and we're all just performing. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a similar thing with like, uh, like 
Pride Month, right? Like yeah, where, exactly. Exactly. You know, we can roll our eyes at the the rainbow marketing and everything, but at least it's rainbow marketing. Like I obviously not great to like use somebody's identity for like a, a corporate gain or something but uh on the flip side you know it, it is nice to see but then groups yeah. the groups that don't have agency or or don't really have power can utilize that type of opportunities or visibility to really leverage themselves and and gain more prominence gain more money gain more followers and so there's ways to to at least utilize these these times and and these sort of uh, specific spaces to really put in towards the best interests of our community. So yeah. for that alone, I'm appreciative. Right. Have you seen representations in media uh, recently or uh, growing up that made you feel especially validated or that you felt were accurate? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I feel like um, there were... So it's it's funny because, I mean, like, when you think about South Asian media, like, uh, like uh, I grew up on Bollywood, which is just, like, that's all we saw was mm-hmm. just Indian people all the time. Um, and so that's, like, the media I saw for the most part. In the U.S., there were obviously a lot of, like, hurtful, stereotypical sort of uh, depictions of both Asian Americans and specifically South Asian Americans uh, in media that were not as fun uh, to, to, to see. But I think that has also evolved in our understanding of how we think about uh, these spaces. And so I think, you know, um, I mean, I remember going to the movie theaters and watching Ben like, Beckham and I loved it. I thought it was such an awesome movie. Um, and that was, I thought, you know, um, Gurinder Charda is like an amazing director. And then from then on, from like, you know, the, then I realized there was like other really great South Asian American movies that really create this sort of um, influence of, of, again, trying to meld these two cultures together. Even before Ben Like Beckham, there was like Mississippi Masala. And then after Ben Like Beckham, we had like the namesake, La Miranere and, and stuff like that. And really since then, there's been a lot of cool representation both in TV and cinema uh, that shows that there's space for South Asian Americans and they don't just have to be like a terrorist in the movie or like a doctor on a you know TV show that there's a lot of other identities that can take place. Right. Those those identities are nuanced and it's not like uh, somebody's heritage doesn't have to be their singular plot contribution. Right, right. Right. Diving into what you mentioned a little bit earlier about kind of that intersection of like queer culture uh, and Asian heritage. Uh, um, there's 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 this like tendency for people to believe that like children of immigrants or uh, anybody that comes from a, a different country has a very like traditional or like conservative yeah. upbringing, uh, regardless of country. And so, you know, going into medicine feels very traditional, but like queer medicine is kind of yeah. a, a different path. How, have you ever received any like pushback uh, yeah. for for choosing that? I mean, I sometimes wonder if my parents even know like what I do. <laughs> like, like, you know, like. I go to like outreach events to like sex parties and stuff like mm-hmm. that, or like cruising areas to like test folks or start prep. I was like, I, I, I don't know if they fully understand that and it's okay. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, all of us have like different coming out experiences to, to our parents. And, um, and again, I feel like uh, going back to this idea that a lot of children of immigrants feel like the need to be perfect or the need to, to really put their best foot forward. And, and part of that is to really try to almost assimilate um, to American cultures, which again, it comes to the problematic end of, of what we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, my parents 
compared to a lot of my other South Asian queer friends, um, came around to me coming out much better. Like I wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't um, a hugely traumatic event by any means, uh, but it took a lot of time to get accustomed to it and, and whatnot. I also came out once I had some agency, meaning I had already gotten to medical school by then. I already had sort of a long-term partner by then as well. So these other things were already in place by the time I came out to them um, that it felt more comfortable I felt in a comfortable place, regardless of what their reaction was, that I would still be okay. And that's what I tell all my, you know, people who always ask, like, when is it okay to come out? Or like that, it really, you have to feel comfortable yourself to, to do that. Um, and then, you know, as far as, you know, what I chose in medicine, but neither of my parents are physicians, so they didn't really know, like, what it was. So, like, when I told them, yeah, I'm going to go into internal medicine, they're like, that's great. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go into infectious disease. They're like, that's great. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually going to, like, HIV medicine, STI medicine. They're like, oh, that's interesting. And so mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. But at that point, it's like I was, like, already in my 30s, so it's like... It right, they're not going to dive into the nitty-gritty Exactly, it didn't really matter at that and... point. That makes sense. Yeah, because it, it, we've been talking about how like medical school works uh, with with other providers and there's not really like you, you know, you can go to be like a neurosurgeon or whatever, but yeah. there's not like I specialize in like queer health. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's more of like an elective uh, in not inconsequential, but like, yeah, sideline thing. So nobody, yeah. nobody like writes that on their transcript that yeah. they went for queer medicine. So I guess it makes sense that your parents were just like, yeah, OK, that's fine. <laughs> um so, so how does that translate into your day-to-day -day at Howard Brown? Like, have you kind of utilized that, that balance of like coming from maybe a, a traditional background, but also now working for Howard Brown and like, how, how has that informed what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. I mean, I, I think Howard Brown has been a, like a transformative experience and, and such an amazing organization to be part of. I think, you know, growing up, I, I never thought like when I, even in med school, when I was like, Hey, I, I want to do like queer medicine. I didn't have like a clear idea, like what exactly that meant. Like, I, I just knew like, like as a kid, I never had a doctor that was affirming, never had a physician that was, you know, really cared about who I was, what questions I had, uh, you know, even asking me about sex, like none of that happened through my pediatrician or sort of early adulthood. And so all I knew is like when I got to med school, was like I want to fill that gap, like I want to fill that void. So whatever I can do um, to make sure like there are people that have affirming care or whatnot is, is hugely important. Um, and, and, and so, you know, when the opportunity presented itself for me to work at a place like Howard Brown, that was hugely impactful. I was able to actually rotate at Howard Brown as a, as an internal medicine resident when I was at Rush, uh, working in with, uh, in a month actually with, with, with Dr. Hulberg and, and John mm -hmm. Stryker, who uh, unfortunately not here anymore, but, but then being really opening my eyes, like, oh, wow, this is like an amazing community health clinic that really provides like, um, really, again, like you mentioned at the very beginning, meets the community where they're at uh, and provides the care that they want. Um, and so that was like, wow, I, I want to work in a place like this. Um, and, and, you know, my day to day, you know, when I'm in clinic or if I'm in meetings and trying to think about, you know, different strategies of, of, of changing clinical operations or whatnot, that was always sort of in the back of, uh, back of my head. Um, but yeah, I, I'm always grateful uh, to work in a place like this just because, again, it, it goes back to, um, you know, my entire drive of why I went into medicine or, or why I'm doing what I'm doing is, is to, to really improve that type of, of care in, 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 in LGBTQ folks. Yeah. Is, is it like a, a Mother Teresa quote or something? It's like, be the change you wish to see in the world. Yeah, I think like, that's Mahatma Gandhi, but yeah. Is it? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, oh my God. It's all good. It's all good. Oh, during a Peter month too, I did that, didn't I? Wow. I am, I, yeah, I, 
I, I growing up, I'm from Southwestern Michigan. I moved here a year ago. Uh, and it's just Michigan, so it's not like it's, you know, a great distance away, but it is very conservative, very small town, Betsy DeVos era, um, area. And yeah, so, yeah. um, I had a similar experience growing up with healthcare that like nobody right. asked about sexuality. Uh, they may have speculated in their head, but they didn't ask me about it. Uh, and certainly not asking about, you know, being sexually active or, I mean, I wasn't, but, uh, there was there was no discussion yeah. as far as that was concerned. So moving here, um, I remember even just like the being part of a queer community uh, and like talking with friends and stuff. They're like, oh, yeah, I just like, like went to Howard Brown and got treated for an SDI or whatever. And I was like, yeah. you told somebody about that? Yeah. Like, certainly not. And so like the, the, the difference was just so um, jarring at first, but like very welcome, uh, right. the difference. And so um, I think it's it's admirable that like you took that experience and kind of just parlayed it into, I guess we both sort of did. I'm not a doctor, but yeah. I'm no, I mean, trying I, to affect that change. Yeah. I, a, I feel like everyone that works at Howard Brown has like a common mission. I think that's what sort of unites like the entire group. And it's like a, like, again, like a, it's like a huge multidisciplinary group all with the, that same mission and what's keeping coming. You know, I, I think that we talk a lot about burnout in the setting of the pandemic. And, and you know, I think, you know, burnout can't be solved through like pizza parties and like ice cream socials, like burnout solved through feeling appreciated, but then also feeling like you're doing impactful work that that what you're doing on a daily basis is actually making a change, no matter how small and whatever small corner of your world, but it's making some sort of difference or some sort of change. And I feel like that is the most protective factor against burnout. And at least for me in the past, definitely the past two years of the pandemic is what kept me going. You transitioned so flawlessly to my next <laughs> point. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. I know we're, we are all... Um, a little burnt out about talking about the pandemic, but I wanted to kind of get your perspective on it because um, even though you are Indian American, there was a lot of um, kind of uh, rhetoric coming from different places across the country when the pandemic first started that right. it was, you know, an, an uh, Asian virus and things. And yeah. so uh, I, I wondered if you sort of felt any of that as, you know, being a provider in the healthcare space uh, or, um, if you, you know, how, how this ex experience has been yeah. in, in healthcare during yeah. a, a pandemic like this. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like anti-Asian sentiment is like not new. We've experienced it time and time again. It comes in sort of flares in this country. You know, my family experienced it after 9-11. And when you think about, you know, where they're, they were sort of just looking at people who looked brown or looked right. Muslim or looked, you know, different in a different way. Um, I think, you know, as far as did I feel, you know, any, uh, uh, major sort of uh, uh, negative uh, feelings coming my way uh, because of the pandemic. I, I can't say I have, but I definitely heard definitely things in passing, both like in patient exam rooms as well as in like other workrooms and stuff like that, uh, that people are making comments like that. And, and again, it, it comes back to if you are a bystander that allows that type of information or exchange to happen, you're sort of implicit in in that type of violence against Asian Americans. And I think, you know, uh, what we've seen, um, you know, in the past two years is this dramatic rise in violence against um, Asians in this country, um, Asian Americans in this country, but also just um, Asian immigrants in this country. Um, and, you know, I, I think, uh, again, bringing awareness to that recognizing that that that's a problem is, is all about how you can even enact any type of change. Um, and again, going back to why things like celebrating months like a PETA month are, are, are important um, because you're able to give a platform for folks to, to really talk about things like this. 
yeah, you, you're so well spoken. You put that so beautifully that like this conversation, uh, is, is a good first step for a lot of people of just like raising that narrative or uh, elevating that narrative and, and, um, kind of communicating, uh, this discussion, I guess, is, is a good first step. Um, when we think about a PETA month, what, what do you want people to take away from this podcast, if anything? Uh, because the, so the goal for the podcast is to have kind of our larger national audience. It's people, uh, queer individuals that are just interested in healthcare or healthcare providers, um, or just my friends that I bully into listening to this. Uh, what, what should we take away, take out of this? You, you, sort of phrase it a little, uh, a little bit in this last question, but what what's our um, parting words, I guess, so to speak? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, um, like going back to thinking about Asian Americans are, are not a monolith. I think there's a lot of stereotypes that are placed on Asian Americans as this quote-unquote model minority that have to be, again, like we talked about perfect or whatnot. And there's a lot of problematic issues that come across like that. I, I think, um, you know, I, I think there are certain Asian Americans that that uh, that certainly are, are, uh, economically advantaged in this country, but there's a huge swath of Asian Americans who are economically disadvantaged, those who are undocumented, et cetera, that, 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 um, that are affected by the same systemic inequi- inequities that, that a lot of other sort of marginalized populations sort of deal with. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I, I think recognizing the, the diversity that we see within Asian Americans is, is hugely important. Um, and then also celebrating, I, I think, you know, celebrating in, in different ways, like different types of events or organizations that are, are, are run by Asian American organizations. In Chicago alone, Dinsum and Drag is like an amazing um, event that's put on by... Dinsum and Drag? Dinsum and Drag. It's in Furbar in, in Boys Town. They have it, it, it they, they're coming back in May. Um, and it's up. it's uh, run by all Asian American queens, um, uh made by, produced by um, Asian American queens. And uh, it's a great place where you can get dim sum and watch amazing drag show with the premieres Asian Asian uh, drag queens of Chicago. They often have guests from across the country come as well. Um, um, events like that, again, it's like a fun way to, to look at sort of the intersection of queer identity and, and Asian American identity and then, and, you know, enjoy sort of amazing food, which is a huge part of all of our cultures. Yeah. Yeah, I... This, okay, so I said parting words, but I lied. Uh, One more question about kind of the intersection of like queer identities and Asian identities. Um, There's that horrible, like, I guess it's a joke, but it's rooted in like people's actual experience. They're like, if you're on like a grinder or Tinder or whatever, it's like, you know, no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Yeah. I've come to realize that like queer spaces uh, are oftentimes created by uh like cis white gay men Uh, and so if you don't fit under any of those identities there's not a lot of great spaces um to feel welcome as part of the Mm -hmm. queer community next month is pride month uh and we as a marketing uh or um, communications department here at howard brown we were kind of brainstorming about ways to you know what what is howard brown's pride campaign gonna be and there was a lot of discussion about like how to you know Pride really historically hasn't been for everyone, um, even though we would like to be. And so you, you did kind of just mention it, but the how do we create queer spaces uh, in, in healthcare and outside of healthcare that everyone feels welcome in? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of this touches upon like 
wider issues that are just not even associated with the queer community, but with everyone, I think are standard. Sorry if you hear sirens in the back. We are um, uh, coming to you live from Chicago, so it's, uh, I guess, part of the ambiance here, but please continue. No, it's all good. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, our standard of beauty is really based in a Western sort of, again, cisgender or gender binary um, uh, and white sort of standard of beauty. And, and again, it's hard to always fault everyone because a lot of times you're sort of naturalized with this thinking of like, okay, this is what an ideal person looks like. And whether you're gay or straight, that's what, that what we were sort of, I mean, what I was like, you know, uh, what I looked at in sort of gay media as like a, you know, a kid when I was all sort of white, you know, hairless, you know, gay men with chiseled abs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and thinking of that, that's the only standard of beauty in the, in the queer world, which is, again, really difficult uh, for, uh, for people who don't meet that for any, any host of reasons. Um, and so I think that's definitely something that as a queer community, we struggle with a lot and we are still struggling with, although I like to think that we've made some progress or some evolution in that regard. Um, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, as far as like, uh, I, I will say like, I felt once I found sort of a South Asian queer community in Chicago, I was sort of blown away. I didn't even realize that existed, that I wasn't the only, because growing up oftentimes you felt like, or I felt like I was the only South Asian gay individual, uh, that there was no one else like me, that there, like I would never find anyone else like me. I, I, when I went to college, I realized that's not the case. And some of my closest friends that I'm still friends with to this day, like 20 years later, like we are sort of all come from this joint identity, intersectional identity of being South Asian, being p- children of immigrants and being queer and that all sort of melding together to, to, to create who we are. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, as pride is able to um, embrace more of these other identities, more of these other organizations that represent things that are just beyond, you know, just the, you know, maybe the traditional ideals that we thought were in queer communities, um, the better. I mean, I think the whole campaign that pride is for everyone, um, that, that, that there's a space for pride for everyone um, is really important. I, I think it, it's easier said than done for sure. Um, uh, but uh, but I, I think, again, being able for the the parade and the organizations being able to put their money where their mouth is and be able to support sort of a diverse sort of array of uh, of performers of of people of stakeholders in sort of the uh, in in terms of pride in Pride Month itself is uh, is super important in that because I, I feel like I mean as a queer person I love Pride I love the Pride Parade I mean it's a lot of fun um, you know um, I would love to see more representation of different types of people there as well um, and so for me it just seems like a win win why wouldn't we want to do that right. You, you said that perfectly. And I think it kind of brings it all back to, we've had a lot of discussions on the show of like having a care team or, you know, a set of providers that uh, looks like you. Uh, and so I love Howard Brown's commitment to um, kind of, you know, reinforcing that, that, that you can come to a Howard Brown clinic and, and find someone that, you know, shares a portion of your identity um, or looks like you or has gone through the same things that you've gone through because that's how you provide culturally competent healthcare and that's how you get the best health outcomes because, you know, I, it was crazy the first time I had a, a gay doctor and I could just yeah, be like, I yeah. feel this way and I didn't have to like worry yeah, about it. Yeah, when so I talk what, to my patients about top and bottoming, they're like, they like are blown up. I'm like, yeah, like we can talk about that. We right, can talk it's, about all it's this normal. Stuff. And, and, and like when you when you throw like, you know, uh, you know cultural heritage into it as well, like it just adds that next level of, of healthcare. So um, Howard Brown appreciates you. Thank you. I appreciate you for coming no, in and, you for and spending time. No, thank you for having me. This is so time. fun. Yeah. Um, 
I, like I said at the top of the episode, there's so much more to dig into here. And it is the running joke on every episode that I always say, like, I'll have to have you back. Because, <laughs> uh, so far, that has been the case that, like, I, I can only begin to dive into some of these issues. So, yeah. um, it, it is fitting. I will have to have you back. But uh, again, Anu, thank you for coming. I would love to be back whenever, Matt. It was a pleasure. Thanks. And that has been our episode on Asian Pacific Islander Desi American Heritage Month. If you have any questions about anything you heard in the podcast, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thank you.